Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to another conversation in Practical Theology. My name is Sayyidah Zaidi, and I'm really honoured to be sharing this platform with Dr. Eric Stoddard. Um, Eric is going to introduce himself as well. Yes, uh, I'm a teacher of Practical Theology uh, here in Scotland at the University of St Andrews. Uh, I've been involved in practical theology now for formally about probably 20 years since I did my PhD. Prior to that, I was a minister in one of the more conservative denominations. I'm now a lay member of one of the more liberal denominations. Gosh, that's an excellent summary. And I'm a um, student of the Doctorate in Practical Theology at Glasgow University. Um, kind of interesting journey to where I am with my faith and I think some of that's going to come up in today's discussion as well um, because we're looking at uh, women and gender issues. In a couple of days time it's going to be International Women's Day and that always kind of raises some interesting questions about the roles of women and in brackets and men in Mm -hmm. faith and so I suppose let's just actually let me kind of open up this um, conversation by sharing what my faith means to me. And um, I think a lot of people have an interesting perspective about Islam and women, and they think, you know, Muslim women are oppressed and, you know, you wear the headscarf, there's a man telling you to wear this and, and all of the, you know, you, you can do this and you can't do that. And yet, you know, there, there are rules in place, but actually I, for me, believe that my faith liberates me because for example um you know women were given rights of ownership of property um within islam 1400 years ago and if we look at the history of um, property ownership within the west this is only something that's happened in the last hundred years that's one example um there is no compulsion in religion you know and so for me my faith comes from me rather than someone forcing me to be within a particular faith and uh, I think the other kind of thing that I always find interesting is when women get married and they change their surnames and when you look at the history of some of this stuff it's because um, in kind of in western cultures even up to you know a hundred years ago when a woman got married to a man she became and her property became the ownership of that man you know and it might be slightly controversial, but I think that we even see kind of like elements of that within the royal family and within um, aristocracy within existing within the UK today. And so, for example, I, when I got married, I didn't change my name and it just, it causes so many issues when you turn up to the airport and your kids have got a different surname from you. But I'm very confident and comfortable in who I am and I think that I would like to think that my as a woman my relationship with God is of far more importance um, than some of the kind of like you know the the day-to-day logistical things that that might get in the way and I think that my relationship with God actually serves how I am with my friends and with my family and also with humanity. Yeah, uh, the practical issues around gender and are, are just so immense. And I'm very conscious that speaking from a privileged position, certainly in UK society as a white male, the, to even 
start talking about gender is is to can I end up doing that from a position of privilege inadvertently? Um, that that to me it would be paralysing. So I've, I've got as a practical theologian, I've just got to leap in there, try and be conscious of the privilege that I'm living in, and try and contribute something to debate. So as a practical theologian, uh, who's a white male in a predominantly Christian ethos type society I, I'm, I maybe have only one leg to stand on let's, let's put it that way um, but I think you know for me Christian faith and gender has had such a mixed history um, I think you know some of the I think what struck me really was once seeing uh, paintings down in the catacombs in Rome it was on a TV program and they were they seem to be clearly depicting women in a significant leadership role at a communion service in the Christian tradition. And this being denied historically by elements of the church. And to me saying, actually, if I want to go back to my Christian biblical roots, there seems to be an awful lot more of a positive understanding of the role of women and not necessarily gender, because I don't think they would have understood that term, but the role of women was certainly much more honoured in certain aspects of the early Christian texts, and maybe we're trying to rediscover some of that. So there's a little bit, for me, of a process of how can I be involved in that recovery retrieval process of the dignity of women when my own traditions have quite often, to say the least, not been helpful. Mm. Do you think that there's an an element of just kind of drawing the line under history, let's say, learning from it and then moving on? Because in, inside my head, that's what I'm trying to do. There, there are issues globally with how women are treated. And, you know, we can clearly kind of contribute to that debate by saying some, something, but actually it's through our actions and through how we live our lives as men and women, that will change the future? I think for you to draw a line for parts of your history is absolutely valid. I don't think I can draw a line on anyone else's behalf. And that would make me conscious, again, it's back to this thing of white male privilege, that if I start trying to draw lines in history, that's potentially excluding voices that I don't want to hear, that I don't want to deal with. But if others want to draw a line in history and move on and become engaged and and deal with the present, I absolutely want to support that. Mm. But I don't want to be drawing lines even inadvertently on behalf of other people over their history. But can you, I, suppose, I suppose the question then is, can you draw a line under... The contribution, I mean, because in in many respects, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but in many respects, the the kind of the history of a a white male dominated approach to women hasn't always been positive, right? Absolutely. And And so is there something to say that rather than kind of responding to the baggage that comes with that, is it is there an opportunity for the line to be drawn, and I'm saying that metaphorically, so that 
the starting point is a different one because for me, what I find is that when um, I'm responding, and I'm talking personally here, but when I'm responding to a lot of negativity that has happened in the past, actually it makes the job of creating a new kind of um, flourishing and thriving situation so much harder because your starting place is in the minuses. Whereas if I just say, look, this is who I am, this is where we are, and let's, let's try and change the rules and, and make it much more positive. I, I, I admire that because you're absolutely right. We could spend forever digging over history and all our energies would go in to be trying to retrieve different things from history. And if there is the space to say, right, this is where we find ourselves. How are we going to deal with the present? Let's get on with the actual issues that need to be tackled right in here and now, almost regardless of the history of them. That's for another time. That's for when there's maybe space to do that. Uh, I, I like that approach. Um, I suppose I'm just conscious that I don't want to, in any sense, impose that approach on others. But if they want yeah. to do that, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I know that what I'm saying can be interpreted controversially and I'm not denying history because I think that you know it, even if I look at my own life there are things that I've done in my life that I'm not proud of but they have made me who I am as a human being mm-hmm. and so those experiences and and I I think that um God kind of as an as an individual God gives us those experiences and those opportunities to learn to make us who we are today and those things will carry on Right. So maybe what has happened within the world is that a lot of things that have happened that, you know, are horrific and we would not want to experience again. But it has brought us to this point now. And now's the time where we maybe think about what do we do next? Because even if you look at all of the, the stuff that's happening globally about the, the Me Too campaign and and how um, or the role of women within society and and female role models and all of this kind of stuff. I think we're kind of like staging on a, uh, sorry, standing on a cliff. And there's some really, really interesting stuff that's going to come in the next decade or two. I just, I have no idea what it is, but some of that will be informed by faith. Some of it will also be informed by an empowerment movement. And some of it will be informed by feminism. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for me, it's about what actions am I able to take? Am I willing to take? Uh, how am I going to respond to people that I encounter in terms of issues of gender that theologically I may have lots of different arguments about it and concepts and theories, but actually it, that although that's important, the more important thing is in my responsibility for my encounters with actual people and what does that really mean and that to me I find that much more challenging because I I love the intellectual sort of diverse going around the houses and coming back again and exploring something and seeing its roots but that can actually be for me a distraction from doing the better thing I mean, I, I agree with you completely because, you know, like um, I try to avoid the um, 
the kind of dialogue about feminism. But then I think it's important to kind of cover that within this conversation, mm -hmm. because for me, feminism is a reaction, right? And actually, everyone's um, kind of definition of feminism is also very different. So mm -hmm. I could say feminism means X, you would say it means Y, and everyone else that's listening, it means something completely different to them. That's why for me, I try in the work that I'm doing as a student of practical theology and a student of faith is not to use words that I know are loaded. And I think that feminism is one of those. And sometimes when people fire that word off, all of a sudden everybody just gets tense rather than thinking actually, as you say, what are the practical things that need to get done? And one of the things that I've started to do, which is really interesting, actually, just watching other people's reactions to this, is that in Islam, God has no gender, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I speak about God, unless I'm tripping myself up and I forget, I actually say he or she. And it's that you, you get so much understanding of how a person is from the way that they respond to that, because they look and they're like, did she really say that? Absolutely. Because for me, God has no gender. And if I attribute God as being male, that is just kind of reinforcing a lot of um, the kind of subtle, unspoken about references to men being better than women. Yes. And because I'm rarely leading in, in public worship, um, of any sort, I don't encounter that as much as I might have done in a, my previous role as a uh, as a minister and facing the challenge of of using both gender pronouns or none to to refer to God. Um, it's sometimes doing it if, if maybe if it's in a classroom setting, not in a context of worship. I, I might do it with a little sticky prod and a poke at people just to get a reaction. I'm not sure if that's really very honourable, <laughs> but yeah, it can be fun sometimes. I think it makes people think. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I personally don't think it's wrong because if it starts the conversation about who is God, mm -hmm. actually, in my opinion, one becomes closer to, to God, even if they're reacting against the fact that you've said, actually, God has no gender. Right. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps it makes them think again, because it's it's very easy. You know, all of the sorry, the majority of the literature and the majority of the holy books, they refer to God as he. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, you, you can kind of I'm not even going to say understand it, but you can see why that happened when you look at um, the way that the um, writing was in history. But we're in a different place now, and there's so much more understanding of um, the sources of, um, of the different faiths. And if your faith says that God has no gender, then really, I think, you know, it's a responsibility upon us to think about what that means for us. Because, you know, I, I would like to have a relationship with God, right? And if God tells us that he, he she has no gender, why am I putting that on God? Yeah, you see, I think that, that, that's the fascinating point. Why, why do we each want to gender God? And, and there's, a, there's issues there about once we start asking ourselves, why is it so important to me that God is either referred to as he or not referred to as he, referred to as she or definitely not referred to as she? 
that tells us something about ourselves, I think. And it it's always going to come back, I think, to power. If we think that there's a power that we can somehow frame God in a way that is powerful by giving God a gender, whether that's male or female, then we can somehow be on the side of that power. And it's reinforcing our desire of power over people. Um, or maybe we can have more influence if we've got God on our side, if, if God is gendered. Mm. Even though we know he, God isn't gendered. Yeah. You see, it's interesting you saying that because you're making me kind of like think about why I want God to be gender less and, and kind of like engage with that. Because mm-hmm. I think I don't want to talk about God as he or she, because that is then me giving him, him, her even more power because I don't know, you know, there's very um, few descriptions within Islam of what, god is as an entity but as a muslim for me he 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 she god isn't a being in the same way as we are right Mm -hmm. and i think that when i start to think about god as um let's say with a male or female pronoun all of a sudden i think that i can relate to god better and maybe it then makes me um less how can i say less consistent or less challenging within my faith and makes me question less about how can I actually then be closer to God mm-hmm. and, and for me it, it's the part of the problem is the depth and weight of Christian tradition that has talked of Father, Son and Holy Spirit being God and the male figure of Jesus being taken to be divine and the Holy Spirit is the is, is the sort of non-gendered um, figure in the Trinity. But that's really bad theology to think of God gendered, but the Christian tradition is so heavily weighted towards those particular patriarchal and male framings that it adds an extra layer of resistance to think of what of those gender issues actually are. Because I'm so steeped in that. And I, I know there's volumes and volumes of Christian theology about the nature of the Trinity and all of that. And, and my head just explodes when I even start to try and read it. Uh, and it's just not a thing that I get into. Um, I'm much more interested in, like I say, why do we want to gender God? How does yeah. the gendering of God work? The philosophical arguments around about it are just way, way beyond anything that I can get my head around. Yeah, I mean, you know, is it easy to say that if we attach a male gender to God, then it's easier to control women? Because sadly, I think a lot of faith is used to control women and, um, you know, things get interpreted in particular ways without really looking at the sources. And so, for example, in Islam, you know, women... Um, are able to be to have leadership roles it's been very clearly defined and when we look at i mean even mary you know is venerated within islam you know and we we speak about 
um, what they call the mothers of the believers. And they're very, very amazing, strong, strong role models. And so the, the kind of, um, dare I say, the literature within Islam consists of two things. You've got the Quran and the Hadith. And the Hadith are kind of documented sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. They have kind of like been come all the way down from his time to now. And if you change one word, all of a sudden it becomes, a, a, you know, I can't, it becomes a weak or not a strong Hadith. And so there's millions of books that are available that, that document these and take us right back 1400 years. Now, the majority of these sayings are available to us today because of the narration of women. And if they did not exist, we wouldn't have such strong hadith. And it's really incredible that, you know, in some of the hadith studies that I've done, um, some of the scholars have even said that, you know, if, if we didn't have um, particular women documenting the hadith, we wouldn't have, you know, 50, 60% of what is available today. And yet within the scholarly circles right now, one of the biggest challenges that I think Muslims are facing is that there is a, um, you know, a million and one male scholars, but an insufficient number of female scholars. And that has happened not because women don't want to learn. It's happened because there isn't as much opportunity for women to learn. And again, I think that we're kind of like just literally standing on the edge of a cliff where things are changing. And Yeah, and, and in practical theology, the balance of genders is remarkably different to it is in most other, certainly Christian theological, biblical guilds. Um, because even just a quick guess of practical theology, if it's not 50-50, it's pretty close to it. Um, and certainly in some practical theology contexts, women are the majority. Um, in publications in practical theology as a journal, it's not 50-50, but I think I did a quick scan for something a year ago, and it, it's not far off mm. being equal. And I think that is important because it's representative, it's making a statement. But on the other hand, if it's about gender related to power, isn't it more important that we tackle how someone is using their gender for issues of power over others, whether or not it's their female gender or male gender? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I, you know, you're absolutely right, because women have an equal opportunity to step into their power and to use that role. And I'm thinking that, that one of the things that, that we need to try and come back to is humanity, right? Mm. And of course, you know, God made men and women different, right? We can't deny that. And so um, we have a different kind of um, physical and psychological makeup. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't lead from different perspectives or you can't kind of study from different roles, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I suppose one of, the, one of the biggest challenges that I've faced as a student of practical theology is the push that I've had to always speak about my work from um, 
a female perspective and and I get that I know my perspective will be different and so that's where the reflexivity comes in but I've always been asked to write about um the research in terms of of does it fit into or where does the feminism feminist agenda fit into it or how does um the the role of women affect what I'm trying to do and I think that that I've actually spent, I ended up spending a lot of time just kind of saying, whilst that's important, that's not what my research is about. And I think that it's made me think that there is a huge space. And even today with the great work that's been done um, previously about feminism and women's studies and the role of women in practical theology, there still is a huge space for women of non-Christian faiths to start looking at these issues and bringing in um, those conversations so that there is a contribution from that angle and i wonder what you make of because you and i have talked about gender as if it's binary now in some ways we, we need to do that at least to get a conversation underway because it gets so complicated but actually if gender is a social construct and it's not binary where does that move the discussion in terms of practical theology see i don't i don't think gender is binary i think i mean i i look at my kids my kids were born 18 months apart and so whenever i bought toys i never bought boys toys or girls toys i just bought toys never separated them and it was just fascinating to me watching my kids playing with these things because when they got to about four or five my daughter started to play with girls toys and my son started to play with what we would call boys toys and there was no influence on that for me you know I want I take both of my kids to football both of my kids knit and all of these other crazy things you know that one would say is um gender specific but I think there's something within um our DNA is humans that gives that it, it um, that expresses itself through our actions. So, for example, as as a female, I will approach things or certain things slightly differently from a male, and there is nothing that I can do about that. I know that that's just the way that that God has created me. What I find gone. I'm just saying. I suppose that I'm much more of a social constructionist when I understand gender. Mm. that I'm not sure about this intern, this, this DNA level, the essentialized male, female, that, yes, biological sex, there are two, but of course are intersex people as well. But gender, I think, is, for me, it's so socially constructed that you know, the way you're describing your, your kids growing up is, is that social construction of gender that's not binary uh, that's a social construction almost in itself um i i think i think you're right in social construction but i think it it's not it's not 100 percent. i suppose is what i'm trying to okay. say because i think that you know and and again you know i can i can only speak about my example but when i look at the the kind of family setup that i have you know my both me and my husband work from home and we homeschool the kids we equally share the responsibilities of the house and we equally share the responsibilities of work you know Mm -hmm. and even when I got married I remember in fact before we got married I remember one of the questions I asked my husband was um, you know how would you feel if your wife earns more money than you 
Now, some may think that that's a controversial question, but I know that within a lot of marriages, and I'm talking across all faiths, if a woman earns more than a man, the man can feel that he's not able to be the one that wears the trousers in the house, you know. And it's, it's fascinating looking at these things because from my perspective, it makes no difference who um, does the task or brings the money or whatever as long as everything gets done. Yeah, and I think it's not until something destabilizes our perspective do we actually realize maybe how binary we are thinking in terms of gender, that it needs someone in our life to be challenging what we had just assumed to be the norm. And that then puts us into a new position of having to say, well, what do I think if my partner earns more than me? Um, and the Big Bang Theory, the TV show, managed to get at least one whole episode out of the dynamics of that. And, and, and it's a standard comedic, mm. but deeply serious issue about unpacking and encountering our own sense of gender. Yeah. And I mean, even to the point where I remember um, one day coming back from work. So I used to be a director in local government. So I had a very big responsibility and a huge budget and, you know, multiple people that I was responsible for. And I remember just kind of like standing at the door one day and thinking, I am not the boss in this house. And then opening the door, because if I went in as the director in local government, actually it would have just messed up the family dynamic and, it, you know, we, I think it's, it's important within any relationship to have respect, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I, I don't, it's interesting actually. Yes, Islam gives men and women different roles and um, there are certain things that I can ask my husband to do and there's certain things that he can ask me to do. But at the end of the day, there's, no, there's nothing to say that men are better than women or women are better than men, you know? And I think mm-hmm. for me, that's, and that's very clearly written in the Quran because whenever there's a reference to um, kind of actions of worship, the um, verbs that are used, or the nouns, I should say, that are used describe men and women, mm-hmm. you know? So one can't say that because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, I'm better than you. But sadly, within the practicality of life, that's sometimes what happens because we've not spent time thinking about this. And I think it again comes back to how we manage our relationships in terms of how we understand how we're going to practice power, how we're reacting to someone else's power over us. And I'm not even sure for me if it's always gender that's the most prominent issue because I can be really intimidated by someone with a certain type of accent that in an academic setting, I know that inside me, I will defer to the person with an Oxbridge-type accent. Because if they've got that sort of accent, they must be brighter than me. And that it's, it doesn't matter what gender they are. And then conscious that if I speak into that setting with a Scottish accent, what are they thinking about me? Maybe that's unfair but it's about class for me, sometimes even more so than gender, certainly in an academic setting. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, this whole discussion about accent, because I literally just came back from a trip to the States. And so, you know, 
despite growing up in a council house, despite, you know, having numerous challenges as I was growing up, I have a very kind of like um, Queen's English accent. I lived in Glasgow for 10 years, but no one could ever tell. Mm -hmm. So you turn up to America and everyone, they're completely mesmerized. And I remember going into um, a cafe once to order a sandwich. And it was uh, the only way I can describe it is it was the guy serving me had fallen in love with me because he was just like in complete shock. And I was thinking, this is just a voice. You cannot judge based on an accent or based on color or based on gender. And maybe, maybe that's what we're coming down to is just saying it's about the essence of the person rather than about the, the physical baggage that they carry. And as practical theologians, being trained to be reflexive, understanding what is it that triggers my unnecessary deference to people with an Oxbridge accent in an academic context. Or, more negatively for me, if I hear someone with a very broad Scottish accent that's not associated with learned discourse, I'm having to work to get over that my prejudice. And that shocks me, even to have to admit that to myself alone here. But it's because it's so ingrained. And I think there's something about accents and class that also tells us about gender, whether it's binary, whether it's socially constructed, our reactions to this Mm. are, it's really difficult sometimes to get a handle on how we're reacting because it's in the moment. I I mean, what's what's, um, fascinating for me about what you've just said is that um, uh, a long time ago, I once said to somebody, I said, you know, as human beings, we all have prejudice and they were horrified. Mm. And I said this because actually we all do have prejudice it's when we have an awareness of what our prejudice is that we can actually um, kind of uh, contribute to humanity more. You know, mm-hmm. I will always love a Scottish accent because I lived in Glasgow for so long. And so for me, it feels as if it's my second home. Um, the French accent makes everyone melt, etc., etc. There's certain accents that I don't like. I won't say what they are in case yeah. anyone's listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But it's just, it's fascinating how we have both positive and negative prejudices and yet society teaches us or is trying to train us to ignore those prejudices and treat everybody as equal and we can strive to do that but somewhere within us there will be something that says you prefer that person because of this and you don't like that person because of that. Yeah, And, and from a faith perspective knowing that in the New Testament, there's an identification of the disciples of Jesus. Well, how can they know anything? Because they're Galileans. They sound like Galileans. And that is just so authentic to how human relations are. But within the Christian tradition, the experience that, you know, when people play Jesus in movies, they tend to have a very standard accent. Mm. And I think that creates for me an image of God that certainly in the New Testament, Jesus was probably speaking with a very broad regional accent. 
but you wouldn't get the impression that that's how Jesus spoke from the Book of Common Prayer, from the King James Bible, or in, in any most Christian churches. And I think there's something, something strange there about how within the Christian community we're enculturating each other, not both in terms of gender, yes, but also in terms of class and language, that I'm not sure we're entirely conscious of how that is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's fascinating for me is, you know, if, if you look at where um, Jesus lived his life, you know, mm-hmm. he was an Arab. <laughs> no one can deny that. And yet when you look at how he is portrayed in movies, it's usually an American or European and, you know, there's no real regard for his actual ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, I mean, I think one of the the conversations that that we could come on to in the future is actually just about uh, about race and mm-hmm. faith. I think there's just so mm-hmm. much kind of rich material there to look at, um, and I know that we could talk about gender issues for all day. There's so much to cover here. I think what's interesting about this conversation is we've we've touched some unexpected angles on the issues of gender and faith. And I think there's still so much more to explore, but hopefully this is a good contribution to those discussions. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say just to draw before we draw this to a close? I, I think just probably to re-emphasize the challenge that I find as a practical theologian to understanding what I expect in this gender discussion and mm. my encounter with people how, how is practical theology helping me, not just as an academic, but as a human being, to be more conscious of how gender is operating as a power mechanism? But that's, yeah, that's many days' discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, I mean, I'm always looking at how um, my, my faith empowers me as a woman, because I think that we live in a time where, um, you know, it, it, it's actually, it, is, it can be quite hard to be a woman living today. And I think that I've got to look at whatever source of inspiration and solace and, you know, um, strength, I suppose, I can draw from. And that will clearly influence um, what I write as a student in practical theology, but at the same time, I think there's something that's, there has to be an element of this that is genderless, you know, and I think it's exploring that relationship and seeing what can come from there. But, you know, like you say, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Um, Eric, thank you so much for another wonderful conversation in practical theology. Um, this is Sayyid Zaidi saying thank you so much for everybody who's been watching. If you have any contributions or any comments that you'd like to make, just comment below this video and we'll come back to you with any kind of responses or any um, answers that we may be able to give you. At the end of the day, we're all on this journey as well. So thank you so much for watching. And thank you, everyone. This has been Eric Stoddart. And be nice in the comments, please. Yeah, absolutely.